Well, God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4 and then in verse 25. This is our part 2 of our series, Who Was Delivered for Our Offenses? And it says in verse 25, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification? Let's go to John chapter 18 and we'll continue the record. It says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should defile, but that they might eat the Passover. Benson on this verse. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the judgment hall, the praetorium, the governor's palace. Properly speaking, the praetorium was that part of the palace where the soldiers kept guard. But in common language, it was applied to the palace in general. The Jewish high priests and elders sent Jesus hither, that he might be tried by the Roman governor Pilate, because they could not otherwise accomplish their purpose, the power of life and death being now taken out of their hands. And it was early, although by this time it was broad daylight, yet it was early in the morning, and much sooner than the governor used to appear. It is therefore probable that he was called up on this extraordinary occasion, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall or into the palace, of which the judgment hall was a part, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Having purified themselves in order to eat the Passover, they would not enter into the palace, which was the house of the heathen, for fear of contracting such defilement as might have rendered them incapable of eating the Paschal Supper. They stood, therefore, before the palace, waiting for the governor, who on such occasions came out to them." Quote. Religion improperly lived is a contradictory thing. For though men are willing to break the greatest of God's commandments, yet because of some perverted sense of warped conscience, they will keep the smallest of rituals thinking themselves still pure in God's sight. Thus these religious men were willing to seek and ultimately accomplish the murder of an innocent man by delivering him to an unjust death, yet they did not want to defile themselves by going into this Gentile judgment hall, as if murder would not defile the soul, but coming into contact with a pagan would. This is often the way of the hypocrite, concerned about exterior show, yet caring little for the heart's inward corruption. And in Matthew 22, verse 26, we read, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Blind men caring more about religious observance than inward spiritual purity. Pool on this verse. A man may be outwardly pure, and inwardly filthy and impure. But no man can have a pure heart, but he will live a pure and holy life, for the external acts are but the impure acts of the soul." End quote. See, regardless of whether the merely religious will accept this or not, it is first the heart of man which is at fault, and not simply the actions of his hands. For no man can do evil with his body, until first evil is embraced and then crossed in his heart. So also, no matter what the body does or does not do, it makes little difference if a man's heart is wrong with God. Thomas Brooks is quoted as saying, 
regarding the heart and its role in both prayer and worship that cold prayers shall never have any warm answers. God will suit His returns to our requests. Lifeless services shall have lifeless answers. When men are dull, God will be dumb. The lesson being that until the heart, which is the most important organ in both man's worship and his actions, is right before God, then God will not recognize anything of man. The Lord, therefore, will only honor, favor, and prosper those who have a broken and contrite spirit and tremble at his word. Isaiah 66, 2. For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at his word. Let's take a look at this for a second. The Lord saying, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look. In other words, who will God look to or towards? Him and only him that is of a poor and contrite broken spirit and trembles at his word. Any, therefore, who will ignorantly believe that a right heart is not directly involved in gaining God's favor, know nothing of God. For according to it, God makes all of his judgments concerning man. Hence, regardless of what these religious leaders did on the outside to endeavor to keep themselves ceremonially clean, this meant absolutely nothing, since their real heart's motive was to murder and crucify God's Son. Sinners thus shall have a great awakening when they stand before the judgment seat and have Christ whom they examined examine them. Because then at that judgment seat, Christ's judgment seat, it shall be the heart of man which is put on trial. Yea, every secret thing of the heart shall be brought to light and made known at Christ's appearing. Romans 2.16 In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Therefore, where the heart despised God's reproof, thought itself righteous in itself, and stubbornly resisted God's spirit, it shall be made known. Another great verse of scripture. Uh, Isaiah 29.15 Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord and their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us, and who knoweth us? Woe unto them that seek deep, that is, who attempt to conceal their real intentions under a plausible exterior and correct outward deportment. This is most strikingly descriptive of the character of a hypocrite who seeks to conceal his plans and his purposes from the eyes of people and of God. His external conduct is fair, his observances of the duties of religion exemplary, his attendance on the means of grace and the worship of God regular, his professions loud and constant, but the whole design is to conceal his real sentiments and to accomplish some sinister and wicked purpose by it. This proves that the design of the hypocrite is not always to attempt to deceive his fellow man, but that he also aims to deceive God, end quote. Every man's heart, therefore, shall stand trial before God, as well as the actions it is engaged in, 
And this trial will be so much more horrific than the fake trial Jesus' accusers now were putting him through. For God knows men way better than they know themselves. And this shall be manifest when men's motives, deceptions, and hypocrisy will come under the test of Christ's inspection. The heart of man is, therefore, not in any way beyond the eye and scrutiny of God, and also will not be from the sight of God's Son. For God can see a man's heart as easily as he sees his body. So do not think that you can dig deep and try to conceal your true thoughts from either God or his ministers. You cannot. Ananias and Sapphira discovered this, as well as Adam and Eve in the beginning. God knows man, and he knows man's heart, and all that transpires within it, good or bad. And men would be so much better in their faith if they actually believed this. Sinners, though, will think that they can keep themselves concealed until prophecy is brought forth. For only when men know that God knows their hearts will they then properly fear God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24 now. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. Now verse 25. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. True prophecy is speaking forth the mind and wisdom of God. And this will often entail where God reveals to men that he knows the secrets of their hearts. Only then, when men come to know that God knows then, will they realize that perhaps they do not really know God. Benson on this verse. Woe unto them, or a warning. Woe unto them that seek deep, that make or dig deep a metaphor from persons digging deep into the earth, that they may hide what they wish to keep safe and unknown, who vainly imagine that they can conceal their hypocrisy and secret wickedness from him, and can deceive not only men, but God, by their external professions and services, or who think they can carry on their projects without the observation or interposition of providence, end quote. John 18, verse 29 now. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. When Pilate asked the charge against Jesus, it bristled with an arrogant and condescending response from Jesus' accusers. Gill on this. They answered and said unto him, offended at the question put to them, and filled with indignation that they should be so interrogated with an air of haughtiness and insolence, reply to him, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee, insinuating that he was guilty of some very wicked action, not merely of a breach of some of their laws procured to them, for then they would have tried and judged him according to them, and not have brought him before him. But they suggest that he was guilty of some crimes recognizable by Caesar's court, and which they did not care to mention expressly, lest they should not succeed, 
not having, as it may be as yet, their witnesses ready, and hoped he would have took their own word for it, without any further proof, they being men of such rank and dignity, and of so much knowledge, learning, and religion, and therefore took it ill of him that he should ask such persons as they were, so famous for their prudence, integrity, and sanctity, such a question. However, they own themselves to be the betrayers and deliverers up of our Lord, which Christ had before foretold, and which Stephen afterwards charged them with. End quote. A man, when he knows he is doing wrong, will often become agitated when his motives are questioned. These men, not wanting Pilate to investigate further, inwardly knew their case against Jesus to be false. How often then have men wanted to hurry an action while inwardly knowing that if there is not time and scrutiny to examine if it's right, its error will not be made manifest. Men therefore quickly sinning simply because they know if they do not do it quickly, then others may recognize it as sin. The charge of Jesus being a malefactor is scurrilous and false and a wholly baseless charge. The charge, therefore, that the religious leaders claimed against Jesus was that he was an evil, rotten, and malicious man. The Greek reveals this in the word used for malefactor, meaning bad, evil in the widest sense, properly inwardly foul, rotten, poisoned, figuratively inner malice flowing out of a morally rotten character. The rot is already in the wood. This is often how evil men will actually view righteous men. Their own evil soul so perverted that what is good, holy, and comes from God, they believe as rotten and poisoned. To an evil man then, good is evil and evil good. Isaiah 5.20 Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Men are thus at their lowest point, lower even than beasts, when they are so twisted that righteousness is thought as vileness. The greater the evil also that lives in men, the greater they will be filled with violence towards good things. This was seen in Cain, slain his brother Abel, so also in Saul by seeking David's life, and evidence as well in the Jewish leaders when they stoned Stephen to death. The hate in the unrighteous so great that murder is what they consider the best option to remove those who are contrary to them. And like so many evil men today, men will project what they are themselves unto others. So twisted, therefore, are those who walk in darkness that they will dangerously conclude that light is darkness, when in fact, because of projection, all they are really perceiving is a mere image of themselves. 2 Corinthians 2.16 To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things? Barnes on 2 Corinthians 2.16 To the one, to those who perish, we are the savor of death unto death. We are the occasion of deepening their condemnation and of sinking them lower into ruin. The expression used here means literally, to the one class we bear a death-conveying odor leading to their death. A savor, a smell witch, 
under the circumstances is destructive to life and which leads to death. Mr. Locke renders this, to the one my preaching is of ill savor, unacceptable and offensive. By their rejecting whereof they draw death on themselves. Grateful as their labors were to God, and this is in reference to Paul, and acceptable as would be their efforts, whatever might be the results, yet Paul could not be ignorant that the gospel would in fact be the means of greater condemnation to many. It was indeed by their own fault, yet wherever the gospel was preached, it would be to many have this result. It is probable that the language here used is borrowed from similar expressions which were common among the Jews. As the bee brings home honey to the owner, but stings others, so it is with the words of the law. They, the words of the law, are a savor of life to Israel, but a savor of death to the people of this world." End quote. The Jews claim against Jesus that he was a malefactor and an evil, rotten, malicious man is born out of the fact that his truth brought their condemnation. Christ become an offensive to their souls because his presence and coming proved they were damned. John 18, verse 31. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Even a carnal, worldly, and earthly man like Pilate knew that there was no just and righteous cause in Jesus being brought to him. The soundness of even an unsaved man having clearer thinking than those filled with unholy religious zeal. Religion thus by itself and without Christ will not make men better but worse. For Christ's words to be fulfilled then, by crucifixion must his death come. Matthew 20, 19. And they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Barnes on this, that the saying of Jesus, to wit, that he would be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles and be crucified. Neither of these things would have happened if he had been put to death in the way that the Jews first contemplated. Though it should be admitted that they had the power in religious cases to do this, yet in such a case it would not have been done as Jesus predicted by the Gentiles. And if it should be admitted that they had the right to take life, yet they had not the right to do it by crucifixion. This was particularly a Roman punishment. And thus it was ordered in the providence of God that the prediction of Jesus in both these respects was fulfilled." End quote. Verse 33 of John 18 now. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Saying thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Jesus, by responding to Pilate's question, put Pilate's conscience at work. Christ's intention was for Pilate to look within himself concerning the claims against Jesus and not simply believe the reports of others. God thus will give men a chance to look, to ponder the truth, so that it might be obeyed and not rejected. Jesus, ultimately knowing Pilate's heart, even if he knows all other men's, 
kindly offers him a chance to consider his upcoming actions. Thus, even as the devil leads people to sin, Jesus will attempt to prevent men from committing it. Jesus also knowing that Pilate's role in murdering him would be a very great sin against Pilate himself. For though Jesus would rise from the dead, he who had played a role in the Son of God's crucifixion would not be forgotten and would remain infamous for eternity for his crime. Every man's eternal destiny also resting many times on what are thought to be insignificant choices at the moment. John chapter 18, verse 35 now. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Seeking to further distance himself from the situation, Pilate becomes disturbed and flustered in having been brought into what he no doubt felt was a Jewish matter. And then also pleadingly, he asked again Jesus what he had done to bring on such vehemence directed towards him by his kinsmen. It seems more than anything, Pilate simply wanted to be done with his responsibility. This would prove impossible though, for the scriptures needed to be fulfilled and Christ needed to die by first being betrayed by the Jews and then murdered by the Gentiles. Thus all of man, history would record, would have their role in the rejection and crucifixion of God's son. Verse 36 now. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Here Jesus reveals the true nature of both himself and the kingdom he came to represent. It is not worldly in any respect. It deals with the heart and souls of men and does not mirror the governments of this world. Jesus, informing Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Christ's true kingdom thus is far beyond the small little worldly kingdoms of this world. Jesus also informing Pilate that if his kingdom was indeed worldly, his forces would fight for him. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Barnes on this verse. Art thou a king then? Dost thou admit the charge in any sense? Or dost thou lay claim to a kingdom of any kind? Christ's response to Pilate's question is, Thou sayest. This is a form of expression denoting affirmation. It is equivalent to yes. Thou affirmest the truth. Thou declarest what is correct, for I am a king. I am a king in a certain sense, and do not deny it. To this end, Jesus does not here affirm that he was born to reign or that this was the design of his coming, but it was to bear witness to and to exhibit the truth. By this he showed what was the nature of his kingdom. It was not to assert power, not to collect armies, not to subdue nations in battle. It was simply to present truth to men and to exercise dominion only by the power of truth. 
Hence, the only power put forth in restraining the wicked is convincing the sinner in converting the heart in guiding and leading his people and in sanctifying them is that which is produced by applying truth to the mind. Men are not forced or compelled to be Christians. They are made to see that they are sinners, that God is merciful, that they need a redeemer, and that the Lord Jesus is fitted to their case and yield themselves then wholly to his reign. This is all the power ever used in the kingdom of Christ and no man in his church have a right to use any other, end quote. Hence, Jesus informs Pilate that his true purpose and that which represented the work of his kingdom best was to bear witness to the truth so that through it, others may be brought to both the truth of God and also the truth of themselves. Christ winning the battle of men's souls, not by force, but by the word of God and the truth of God found in himself. John 1.14 And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ's weapons are spiritual and as such have their aim and primary power to convert the souls of men. 2 Corinthians 10, 14. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Our Lord waging the most important battle in the earth, which is the salvation of men's souls by the influence of the truth of God being presented to them. For the soul of man, which will either go to heaven or hell. Psalms 86, 13. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. The immaterial part of man, which he seems to think so little of, either basking in God's presence or burning in hell's furnace. Hence, the real war that should be fought is that which brings men's souls back to God so that they might be saved from their own sinful destruction. Man's real life, not consisting in the life of his body, but in the preservation and salvation of his soul. Yet how few men realize that it is their soul which is their greatest treasure and to it they should look to protect. Remembering also that the only way men's souls can be saved is if they love the truth, simply because nobody can be saved by God who does not first love the truth and embrace it as the most important thing in their life. 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. See, only when men are exposed to the truth of God do they have a chance to depart from their evil and wicked way, which can lead them nowhere but to death. Christ bearing witness to the truth, because also that was his very nature. Likewise, only those who desire the truth will respond to and hear Christ's call. As no man will believe on the Son of God who is not first interested in the discovery of truth. It would be the spirit of truth that the resurrected and ascended Jesus would send to his followers. Uh, John 14, 17, Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him 
for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. The truth also that Jesus would use to sanctify those that God had given him, John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Yet it was because of this speaking the truth that ultimately led to Jesus being crucified. Evil men, therefore, cannot take and will not tolerate the truth. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Because, and this is the reason, I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The reason also that sinners hate the truth is because when it is testified to, it will reveal that man and his works are evil. The truth is therefore threatening to sinners simply because it reveals their true nature and what evil spiritual power actually leads them in this world. Ephesians 2, 2, great verse of scripture, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. According to, or you walked according to, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now, even now, worketh in the children of disobedience. It was thus the proclamation of the truth, especially in regard to the religious leader's true nature, and who they actually were being led by that directly led to Christ's crucifixion. For Jesus knew early on who sought his death and therefore revealed which father they really were of. The devil, therefore, was as much involved in Christ's death as he was in the Garden of Eden and man's first temptation. John 8, 44. This is Christ speaking. You are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. Ellicott on this verse. You are of your father the devil. Ye is emphatic. Ye who have claimed Abraham and God as your father. You are of the Father, but that Father is the devil. The Father who has been referred to in John 8, 38 and John 8, 41 is now definitely named. The relation between Father and Son is maintained, but the Father of the thought and acts of those to whom he speaks was not God, not Abraham, but the devil. And the lusts of your Father you will do better Ye desire to do, ye will do. The verb is not an auxiliary, as it appears to be in our version, but expresses the determination of the will. He, in reference to the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. The fall was the murder of the human race. And it is in reference to this, of which the fratricide, which is the killing of one's brother or sister, in the first family was a signal result that the tempter is called a murderer from the beginning. Cain was of that wicked one and slew his brother. The reference to the murder is suggested here by the fact that the Jews had been seeking to kill our Lord, John 8:40. They are true to the nature which their father had from the beginning and abode not in the truth 
because there is no truth in him, again in reference to the devil. He has no place in the sphere of truth. It is not the region of his action and outer life. And the result of this is that there is no truth in the sphere of his thought and inner life. Had he been true, he would have come to stand in the light and life of the truth. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. This is in contrast to the work of Christ and to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will speak of himself. He came to speak the truth which he heard from God. The devil speaketh a lie and this of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. Better and the father of the liar. This is probably the meaning of the Greek. It can only be expressed in the English by the repetition of the substantive. The verse ends as it begins by a reference to the Jews whom he is addressing. They were of the nature of him whose spiritual children they were. The murderous thoughts in their hearts and their non-receptivity of the truth plainly indicated who their father was, end quote. The darkness of the devil, therefore, cannot be underestimated. His true nature, more evil than most men have ever even remotely fathomed. So that even as God is light, the devil is equally as dark and capable of evil as God is of good. The serpent, as aptly described, treads on the ground beneath man's feet, unsuspected by those he wishes to influence to do his evil deeds. It is hate and loathing that fills him, so that whenever he can, he will spread his hate and contempt for all things righteous. The devil, therefore, was directly involved in Christ's murder because his own wicked children planned it and then strongly influenced the Romans to carry it out. Hence, just as Christ has truth for his primary weapon, the devil uses lies for his, even as it was also by the devil's lies that false accusations were made against Christ, which then led to his crucifixion. Verse 38 of John 18 now. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. I rarely differ on interpretations that other learned and spiritual men give on accounts, but I do here. For I do not see in Pilate, though he asked the question and went away as being either angry or indignant, though he waited not for Jesus' answer. I personally believe he was as confused about what was the truth, not only in the singular sense of Jesus, but rather on a much broader scale, which included even his own life. See, many men have lived long lives without either an interest in God or spiritual things, ultimately then coming to realize that they have no idea whatsoever as to what truth is. Hence, Pilate's response seems to me is one of throwing up his hands at both the situation that he was in and his perplexity as to why Jesus was being so charged. The evidence supports this as Pilate declares that he finds no fault in the man Jesus at all. Hence, as far as Pilate is concerned, there is no just reason or even a small indication of guilt on Christ's part and surely not anything that would be worthy of putting Jesus to death. Pilate therefore seeks to release Jesus, hoping that this would put an end to the proceedings and he could return to his formal duties. John 18, verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. 
Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The mob, with its howling of, Not this man, but Barabbas, shows its great intent on having Jesus put to death, making their choice to actually save and spare a murder in Christ's place, showing us how evil men will always side with those of their own. The Cambridge Bible on this verse of scripture. Now Barabbas was a robber. The robber is the bandit or brigand who is more dangerous to persons than to property and sometimes combines something of chivalry with his violence. In the case of Barabbas, we know from St. Mark and St. Luke that he had been guilty of insurrection and consequent bloodshed rather than of stealing. And this was very likely the case also with the two robbers crucified with Jesus. Thus, by a strange irony of fate, the hierarchy obtained the release of a man guilty of the very political crime with which they charged Jesus with, which is sedition. The people, no doubt, had some sympathy with the insurrectionary movement of Barabbas. And on this, the priests worked. Barabbas had done just what Jesus had refused to do, take the lead against the Romans. They laid information against Jesus before the Roman government as a dangerous character. Their real complaint against him was precisely this, that he was not dangerous. Pilate executed him on the grounds that his kingdom was not of this world. The Jews procured his execution precisely because it was not, end quote. Jesus thus was numbered with the transgressors, first here with Barabbas and later with the two thieves on the cross, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Benson on this. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was willing, for God's glory and for man's salvation, to be reproached and punished like a malefactor, in the same manner and place with them, and between two of them, uh, Mark 15, 27 and 28. To die for sin, Jesus needed to be counted as sin and consequently suffer what all sinners must, which is to receive the penalty of death. The Son of God was thus numbered with the transgressors simply because he needed to be included as one in order to die for sin and ultimately create a path that through himself men could receive the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 now. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, and this is the purpose, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here is the ultimate purpose in Jesus dying for sin. It was so that men could be made the righteousness of God in him. See, Christ did not know sin, but became sin for us. We did not know righteousness, but have received it through Christ. Ellicott on this verse, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, better that we might become the righteousness of God. 
expresses not simply the righteousness which he gives, now listen to this, nor that which he requires, though neither of these meanings is excluded, but rather that which belongs to him as his essential attribute. The thought of St. Paul is that by our identification with Christ, first ideally and objectively, as far as God's action is concerned, and then actually and subjectively, by the act of will which he calls faith, we are made shares in the divine righteousness. So, under like conditions, St. Peter speaks of believers as made partakers of the divine nature. The importance of the passage lies in its presenting the truth that the purpose of God in the death of Christ was not only or chiefly that men might escape punishment, but that they might become righteous, end quote. When God's righteousness is seen properly and is not merely abused by those who want to use it as grounds for a continued life in sin, it is a beautiful thing. As through Christ's death and being raised by God from it, we, the church, have received an element of God's own righteousness. This righteousness is a righteousness that belonged to God. It is what He gives to those who believe upon His Son. Hence, that righteousness which makes up and constitutes God's own holy character has been passed on and made the possession of those who make Jesus Christ their Lord. This is why Jesus allowed Himself to be numbered with the transgressors, so that through His becoming sin, men could receive God's righteousness. The glory of the cross, thus, is that through it, a righteousness from heaven emerges to be given to men on this earth. It is worth emphasizing as well that the righteousness that the believer receives from God as part of his new nature is only found through Christ. For men cannot ever, in any way or in any manner, receive God's heavenly righteousness through anything of their own flesh. This divine quality, only coming as a gift from God, to those who have first repented for their sinful nature and then made Jesus Christ Lord of their life. Hence, there cannot be, nor will ever be allowed, any human righteousness in God's righteousness. This holy righteousness is only from the Lord and alone that which makes up His holy character. Thus, it cannot be found nor developed by any of God's fallen creatures, unless by God's own grace it is imparted unto them. Again, God's righteousness is not in any way an involved human righteousness, which is often thought to come from religious observance and or mere exposure to God's word, simply because there is nothing that men can either practice or do through their flesh that can make themselves divinely righteous. It also will prove impossible for any man who has not believed upon God's Son to have any part of God's righteousness as this divine righteousness comes only through the Son of God, so that without reception of Him, men will remain in their unholy and unclean fleshly state. He then who chooses not to believe upon Jesus will forfeit being made righteous by God through Him. Amen.